business cases for DEI, which I get asked for all the time, are both racist and misogynistic. And I don't say that lightly. Nothing irritates me more than being asked to provide a business case for diversity and inclusion. And the reason I say that is there's just no business case for white men. There's no business case for the status quo. We have all the data. So nearly every professional service firm for the last decade has published reports and copious amounts of data showing that more diverse, more inclusive workplaces result in better business outcomes. So you increase performance, increase productivity, increase financial performance, better decision-making, more ethical decision-making, higher rates of innovation, higher rates of creativity. And the same is true for leadership. So a more inclusive way of leading is a better way of leading, right? You're going to get greater engagement, greater productivity from your employees, greater collaboration, greater creative problem solving. And a lot of that just makes sense. When you bring diversity in and you harness the value of that diversity, you're going to get better business outcomes because not everybody's going to think the same way. People are going to contribute. They're going to feel comfortable sharing their ideas, calling out mistakes, learning from mistakes. It just makes sense. It would be better for business. The problem is when we put that business case forward, we're sort of defending the right for people to be included in workplaces. And I have a really hard time for that because there's no business case for the status quo. And actually, if you look at the data we have, you know, you'd be hard pressed to make the case for keeping things as they are. So the next time someone asks you for a business case for DEI, ask them for the business case for maintaining things as they are, because we have enough data to know that businesses need DEI, not individuals. Don't be fooled into thinking somebody's doing you a favor by including you and hiring you. They need your diversity. I think the other piece that's missing for me, and that really irritates me, is when leaders ask for business cases, is you're missing the whole point of this. DEI is about having a personal case to change, is recognizing every single one of us contribute to creating environments that value difference. And in those environments, yes, even for white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied men, you are going to be more successful because you're not going to spend time hiding the fact that you want to pick your kids up. You're not going to spend time hiding the fact that you have interests outside of work. You can come to work, you can be yourself, and you're much more likely to be effective in that environment. So for me, the goal is to really recognize why it is that a more equal workplace, a more equitable workplace serves to benefit you. And if you can finish that sentence, they're likely to be a lot more effective. Welcome back, everyone. It's 2022, and this is episode 180 of The Fix. I just, I can't believe it. I'm your host, Michelle King, and I'm joined by Kelly Thompson, and you are listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Before we start, I just want to take a minute to thank all of you for being such incredible listeners, subscribers, and supporters. When I reflect on where this podcast all began, it's been an incredible journey. Every week, we spend about 10 hours interviewing, producing, and creating the podcast, and we do it all for free as part of our advocacy. Over the last four years, we've spoken with hundreds of incredible people from all walks of life about how to make workplaces more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Over that time, I found that there are some consistent lessons that people share around what it really takes to build a workplace that works for everyone. So to help kick off this year in the right way, Kelly and I will be discussing our top 10 lessons learned when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
This is based off the podcast episodes as well as our combined four decades of experience and my nearly two decades of researching how workplaces work. I've not shared these insights anywhere else, so this is a first pass and hopefully you'll find it helpful, practical and inspiring way to begin your year. So let's get started with our top 10 DEI lessons for 2022. One of the first lessons that I've come across after doing 150 episodes and speaking with global experts on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really that this idea that focusing on representation, what I call the scoreboard, you know, really doesn't make very much sense. It's quite a short-term approach. Representation, like how many people of what demographic you have at what level in your organization, just gives you a snapshot of where your organization's at. What it doesn't do is actually tell you how people are feeling, what's the lived experience of people in that organization. So for me, that first lesson is really, you know, focusing on representation at the expense of sort of managing the lived experience, how people feel about your organization, whether they feel valued for their difference, whether you're harnessing the value of the diversity you bring into the organization is a major mistake. And like there's that Accenture study, that 2020 Accenture study that shows that while we're getting more diverse, we're actually getting less inclusive. And I think this really points to what I'm saying, that, you know, having a representational approach can be quite damaging where you just focus on numbers. It does nothing to tackle or solve the cause behind why you have low representation in the first place. You know, you can't cut, copy, paste equity into your organization. You actually have to tackle the root cause of the issue, which is that lived experience, people not feeling like they can be themselves and be valued for that. I don't know what you think, but for me, this was definitely a major red flag out of a lot of the interviews. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it always sounds a bit strange, doesn't it, as equality practitioners, when you say to people, you know, we talk too much about diversity, diversity shouldn't be the focus. And people think, what? I thought that was the thing I was supposed to be focusing on. I thought I was supposed to count the number of women. And of course, that's really important. But like you're saying, Michelle, I think it's quite a narrow focus. And I always think it's a bit like a 2D picture, isn't it? Diversity sort of gives you like the surface level sense of numbers, but it's not the 3D picture of what's actually happening. And if you focus too much on the numbers and the representation, what tends to happen, and this is where it gets risky, is the organization's got a bit of tunnel vision and resources and efforts and time and money, frankly, is directed towards making the numbers look better. And actually, that would be so much better spent on the more holistic stuff that you're talking about, on understanding the culture, understanding where things are going wrong, and also understanding where things are going right, and how you can replicate that and make that something that's kind of more part of the DNA of the organization and not just little pockets. And we're really rubbish often at measuring that, or even thinking about measuring that And I think that's how you crack this, because then you move from a snapshot, as you described it, picture in the moment of one measure to actually something sustainable that you've understand and you can replicate and tweak and change and measure going forward. So I know I completely agree with you. And one thing I know we've talked about a lot, and we had this on one of the podcasts with Dr. Ted, and I know that you've got really strong views on it, Michelle, so I'm going to chuck this one to you, is targets and quotas. I think targets are incredibly lazy and it's a quick fix approach that does nothing to tackle the underlying problem. So representation and really diversity in workplaces, demographic diversity, 
is an outcome of workplaces of value difference, right? Yeah. So we often look at it as the starting point. It's not, it's an outcome. And there's so much data now to show this, that when you create a culture where people feel like they can be themselves, be valued for that, you will see your numbers increase. Actually, interestingly, you know, both for men and women. So men are twice as likely to advance in those environments. And women are four times more likely. And the reason for that is you're in an environment where, you know, you feel like you can be yourself. And the problem with targets, and I never used to have a major opinion on it until I researched it as part of my PhD, is it doesn't work for anybody. So it's a short-term solution. And what we see is people from underrepresented groups who popped into the roles, what we see is that they doubt themselves. We see that people around them doubt their competence and question their capability actually they are 50% more likely to be dismissed irrespective of their performance. And so it really is a short-term solution to a long-term problem. Also, overwhelmingly, those individuals from underrepresented groups are placed in those roles and then held accountable for solving the very inequality. And, And what happens is when they then invest in DI efforts and give their time to it, research finds their performance ratings drop off because people believe they're being nepotistic and investing in something that they only care about because it's a cause that's near and dear to their hearts. So nobody wins. So for me, the big lesson is focus on the game, which is the culture of your organization, the lived experience, the behaviors you're engaging to value the diversity you have. Use the scoreboard as an indicator of how things are going, recognizing that it's an outcome. But in terms of solutions, I would heavily wait for the lived experience. So our second lesson for the year, and I feel like we could talk about each of these, their entire episodes that are right. <laughs> for me, this is a big one, and I'm going to just say it and name it, which is that you know business cases for DEI, which I get asked for all the time, are both racist and misogynistic. And I don't say that lightly. Nothing irritates me more than being asked to provide a business case for diversity and inclusion. And the reason I say that is there's just no business case for white men. There's no business case for the status quo. We have all the data. So nearly every professional service firm for the last decade has published reports and copious amounts of data showing that more diverse, more inclusive workplaces result in better business outcomes. So you increase performance, increase productivity, increase financial performance, better decision-making, more ethical decision-making, higher rates of innovation, higher rates of creativity, And the same is true for leadership. So a more inclusive way of leading is a better way of leading, right? You're going to get greater engagement, greater productivity from your employees, greater collaboration, greater creative problem solving. And a lot of that just makes sense. When you bring diversity in and you harness the value of that diversity, you're going to get better business outcomes because not everybody's going to think the same way. People are going to contribute. They're going to feel comfortable sharing their ideas, calling out mistakes, learning from mistakes. It just makes sense. It would be better for business. The problem is when we put that business case forward, we're sort of defending the right for people to be included in workplaces. And I have a really hard time for that because there's no business case for the status quo. And actually, if you look at the data we have, you know, you'd be hard pressed to make the case for keeping things as they are. So the next time someone asks you for a business case for DEI, ask them for the business case for maintaining things as they are, because we have enough data to know that businesses need DEI, not individuals. Don't be fooled into thinking somebody's doing you a favor by including you and hiring you. They need your diversity. I think the other piece that's missing for me, and that really irritates me, is when leaders ask for business cases, is you're missing the whole point of this. 
DEI is about having a personal case for change, is recognizing every single one of us contribute to creating environments that value difference. And in those environments, yes, even for white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied men, you are going to be more successful because you're not going to spend time hiding the fact that you want to pick your kids up. You're not going to spend time hiding the fact that you have interests outside of work. You can come to work, you can be yourself, and you're much more likely to be effective in that environment. So for me, the goal is to really recognize why it is that a more equal workplace, a more equitable workplace serves to benefit you. And if you can finish that sentence, they're likely to be a lot more effective. So that's my rant on business cases. I'm very <laughs> interested in your views on this because for me, this was a, was a really big one. Yeah, no, no, I agree, Michelle. And also, I think you've just written your next TED talk there. That was wonderful. (laughs) No, I completely agree. And by the way, there's also a really clear legal case just before we move on to why this is the wrong focus. The discrimination claims that I deal with, they don't tend to be one enormous big bang incident that's happened. They tend to be a series of little things or long-term issues that kind of build up and someone reacts to what they regard as a toxic culture. So actually, before you get onto the sort of financial economics of it, there's a regulatory legal piece of the jigsaw. But I'm completely with you. I think it's the wrong focus. And the reason we spend so much time talking about the business case is because, let's be honest, we are thinking that greater equality is a favour to the marginalised, like you said, that ultimately this is like a nice to have that will do almost like a charitable endeavour. And that could not be more wrong, even from a business perspective. It's such a core part of actually operating properly in the future. There's an American athlete that I follow on Instagram. I don't know whether you've come across him, Shula Baylor. So he's the first openly trans division one swimmer in the States. And he put something up about this very point the other week. He said, isn't it interesting that when he's named, it always refers to the fact that he is queer, that he is Korean American, that he's trans. But he's like, we never would say about Michael Phelps, God, look at that cis white swimmer. He's super fast. Because actually the whole point is these identities are perceived as the norm. So one kind of facet of privilege is that you never have to think about your identity, that it's the norm, that it's the status quo, and that we call out anything outside of that because it's not the norm. And this sort of approach of focusing on the business case just exacerbates and continues that, that this is the norm and the status quo. Everything else is a bit of a favor and a departure from the norm. And why I think that's also dangerous is that it consigns equality to this kind of nice to have shelf so that we see things like at the start of the pandemic, when chaos reigned and people were trying to spend less money, focus on core bits of their business, lots of organizations and actually even lots of governments at the UK government shelved gender pay gap reporting immediately at the start of the pandemic, because you're putting it in that nice to have when everything else is in order, we can focus on these kind of additional things. And that's because you're looking at it not as a core business personal issue, but something that you do as a favor. I think it's completely the wrong focus and I think it benefits nobody to look at it in those terms. So our third one then, Kelly, is that most DEI solutions don't work because we're focusing on the wrong thing. And I came up with a model based on my PhD around for DEI strategies, if you're interested in advancing diversity in your workplace, it generally requires an integrated focus on four things. So you've got to look at your policies, your processes, your practices in terms of behaviors, and then shared personal beliefs about what good looks like in your workplace. I've talked a bit about the success prototype and the shared idea of what good looks like, which tends to be that white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied male. 
that we associate that with leadership. And unfortunately, that then is also translated into a set of behaviors, which is being sort of dominant, assertive, aggressive, and somebody who's willing to work very long hours, make work the number one priority. And what we find is those beliefs then shape behaviors, and those behaviors then really translate into who gets rewarded, who gets promoted, who gets included. And that trickles down into processes. So how we hire, develop, reward, promote tends to sort of filter out difference and hire people who's aligned with what we think good looks like at work. And we devalue difference in that way. And, you know, that then is translated into policies that are written with this ideal in mind. So when you have an integrated approach, it really looks at those four things. What you start to find is, you know, you're much more likely as an organization to be addressing all aspects of inequality. And we tend to find most companies sort of sit at that policy process level. But from your perspective, can you share a bit about the importance of integrating the four P's? Yeah, absolutely. I love your 4P model. One of the reasons that I really rate it is it's totally reflective of even just the narrow kind of legal lens. So if something's gone wrong and you end up in court with a discrimination claim, certainly here in the UK, and I'm sure it's similar in, in most countries, and you turn up with your lovely shiny policy that says we respect everybody, we value difference, we will not discriminate against anybody based on their sex, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. We won't tolerate harassment. That's great. That policy is great. But if you turn up and wave that at the judge, the first question you're going to be asked is, well, how did you communicate that policy? How did you train people on it? What did people understand that policy meant for how they should behave? What did you reward? What did you punish in terms of behaviours? What did that actually mean in practice? And so even from a very narrow, in a way, legal lens, it's interested more in the day-to-day lived experiences of individuals than what you might have written down. So I think hiding behind a policy, or put kind of less unfairly, thinking that the policy gives you a tick in the box and you can move on, you've dealt with that issue, is really dangerous because we all know that there can then be a real disconnect between what leaders in the business think the organisation is doing and not doing. You know, someone says, what have you done around eradicating harassment? And you get the answer, well, we've got a policy and we did a training session on it. And it can give a false sense of security that you've resolved that issue, that you've written something down, therefore it must be okay. And actually more that is a disconnect between what you've written and what you say you're about and what people actually experience, the worse it is. Because there's nothing worse is there than going to an organisation that sells itself in a certain way and tells you that the culture is like this and then you experience something different. It's actually really psychologically damaging and also really damaging from a reputational perspective. And your policies do that. They say something about the culture that you want to portray. So you better stand behind it and give people that experience in reality. I think part of it, Michelle, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, it's a little bit like what we're talking about with diversity versus inclusion, that it's very easy to measure and understand what you've done from a policy process perspective, because it's tangible. I think organisations really struggle often with how to get into measuring and understanding the other two P's. And I think that's why people quite understandably revert to this bucket of the policies and the processes because they can see them and feel them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think it's less on measurement. And if we're just honest with ourselves, more on most people just don't know how to practice inclusion every day as part of their jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And so then that leads to, well, if we don't know how to do it, it's going to be really hard to measure it. (laughs) And so for me, the problem is more that most organizations don't want to do the hard stuff, the hard, gritty, dirty stuff, which to be honest, I feel like I do every day as part of my work, which is dealing with 
people and helping them understand why every single one of us are accountable for creating cultures, for valuing difference, for creating other people's experiences of inequality and our jobs at work are to understand how can we behave and how can we do the how of work in a way that values difference. And if you don't know that, if you can't list sort of five to 10 things you're actively doing to create an environment that values difference in your workplace, then that's the problem to solve. And I think until we crack that, we're missing the whole thing. And so for me, it's absolutely correct in saying policies, processes, let's get that in place. But my message to organizations when they stop there is you can't think your way out of inequality. Inequality is a practice. It's something that we do. It's a verb. So we've got to understand how do we behave in a way that values difference. And for me, that's the goal, right? And when you can do that, you're also much clearer as to what good looks like. And so I think defining in your organization, hey, this is what good looks like. These are the behaviors that we want you to engage in. Well, then allow people to understand what's being asked of them. And what's scary, Kelly, is a lot of my research has shown most leaders and most employees, if you really ask them, hey, how do you practice inclusion as part of your job? They'll tell you they don't know. Yeah. And so I think when it comes to DI, we know it's important. We know we need it. We know we should be doing it. Most of us don't really understand how that translates into our jobs and how we do our work. Absolutely. And that leads us very neatly onto our fourth lesson, doesn't it? It does. So leaders drive culture and culture creates experiences of inequality. If I have to say this one more time, it's going to drive. Haven't you got a tattoo? Have you got that tattoo yet? I I do. I've got it somewhere. (laughs) Like for me, this is such a big one because we have to hold leaders accountable for the culture they create. You know, leaders set the standard for what good looks like in terms of their behaviors. Every day they get to decide what behaviors are awarded, endorsed, supported managed, exited from the organization. And the problem is when leaders behave in a way that devalues difference, that's what encourages employees to follow suit. And that creates an entire lived experience, the culture of the organization that devalues difference. So the inequality you're experiencing as an employee in your workplace is a direct result of crappy leadership behaviors. And I always say that to senior executive teams and boards because I feel that's my role as an advocate. It's like, hey, you want to solve this problem. Well, you are the problem. And we need to get you to behave in a way that values difference because that's going to then encourage everyone who works for you to do the same. So if you want to solve inequality in your workplace, if you want to solve your representational issue, start by looking at how you're showing up, the behaviors you're engaged in, what you're doing. Just one thing to add that comes up time and time again for me it's about opening up that conversation because so often leaders can understandably feel like you're saying because you have privilege you've somehow done something wrong you should be embarrassed about it you need to apologize you haven't worked hard and it's not saying that at all you can be privileged and also oppressed you can be privileged and also have really struggled and worked your bits and pieces off to get where you are but what you haven't had necessarily are the same barriers that these other people who you manage have had purely because of things that they were born with. And you, in your position of privilege, have more ability to help that person. Why would you not? And I think if we can frame the conversation like that, we get away from this idea of, but I'm not a racist, I'm not sexist, and that kind of focus on you as an individual leader and what you feel versus actually that individual's experience. We should be looking at the perspective of other people, not ourselves as leaders. And the big one here is, you know, just because your workplace works for you doesn't mean it works for everybody in the same way. And I don't know why we have such a hard time with this, but a bit of perspective taking and recognizing workplaces don't work for everybody in the same way. And my job as a leader is to understand why that is. 
and to try and solve for that, right? Try and remove obstacles to people's advancement. So we have to hold leaders accountable. This leads to lesson number five. For me, this is a really big one and one I still work on, which is something that leaders have quite a hard time with because we want to have a a one-size-fits-all approach, right? It makes life really easy for managing people. But we've got to treat people like people. And, you know, the principle around that is really that intersectionality is the way to do that. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, intersectionality was originally, Kimberly Crenshaw, who sort of founded that concept, was originally really about Black women's experiences of gendered racism. So looking at, you know, how racism, sexism come together to create unique experiences of inequality for Black women. But I do think that you can apply the logic of that in what we call intersectional thinking to really try and recognize that all individuals are made up of different identities and that their different identities create unique experiences of inequality. So that's all very technical to really say, treat people like people. And you can't just have a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, we had a guest on talking about hybrid world of work, and I really disagreed with what she was saying. She was really advocating for the fact that, you know, if we can just get the policy right, we'll we'll find a way to make this whole post-pandemic workplace work and it'll be structured and everyone can sign on. And I was like, no, the future is treating people like people. The future is recognizing you're never going to have a policy that covers everybody's experience and needs of working life. We're all different. Some of us have dependents. Some of us don't. Some of us have children. Some of us don't. Some of us, you know, have specific medical needs. Some of us don't. And so recognizing that every person is a person. And as a leader, your job is to get to know your people understand their needs, understand their values, understand the barriers they face and manage. That's what leading is. And so for me, for some reason, we miss that in all of this, that treating people like people's key. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are various kind of movements against intersectionality on the conservative far right, in particular in the States. And actually, when you dig into it, it doesn't tend to be that those people have a problem with the concept of intersectionality in the way that Kimberly Crenshaw and others have described it. They're happy to accept that there is a compounding of inequality when you have multiple differences layered on top, but they rail against the next step, which is a misconceived idea. The idea that intersectional thinking is about upending the hierarchy so that you put white cis straight men at the bottom and flip it. It's not about that. It's about dismantling the hierarchy. It's about, as you said, treating people as they come as individuals and understanding the differences and the value that they bring, not putting them in a certain place on the pyramid based on characteristics and groupings. And I think that's where you get some of that concern about I'm going to have to give up my seat at the table purely because I'm a white man in order to make space. And it's not about that. It's not about that at all. So yeah, I'm with you. Intersectionality is the way forward. But that actually leads to the second piece. We tend to think of, uh, sort of lesson number seven for me, is we tend to think of a lot of this as in that way, right? The zero-sum game or that somehow we need are now being asked to do something different. And for me, managing or leading simply is inclusive leadership. So I get leaders who come to my workshop saying, you know, I was a bit worried when I got the invite to come to Michelle King's workshop on inclusive leadership because what have I done wrong now? <laughs> and I have to sort of say nothing. Your organization is investing in your leadership capabilities. Leading is being inclusive. Yeah. And I think the problem is when we see it as somehow separate, 
that really is this idea that we're trying to somehow invert the hierarchy or, oh, now I've got to include people. No, no, you were actually always required to include people. You just weren't doing your job. And so it's getting leaders to understand that for me, equity and equality are invitations for leaders to lead. It's an opportunity to understand that your job is to get to know your people. As I said before, you know, really understand who they are, understanding the challenges they face, removing that so that they can be as productive and innovative and collaborative as possible. And by the way, in doing that, you're going to be more successful. <laughs> so it is Absolutely. just, it is self-serving and it's a highly effective way to lead. Yeah. So we're not actually asking you to do anything different. You just probably weren't doing your job. And I don't know what your views are on that, but for me, this is really a critical one for leaders to get. Yeah, a lot of the work I do with clients is where there are organizations who get that DEI is as much a part of a leadership's toolbox as financial acumen and operational understanding. It's also some sort of optional extra that you do for extra credit. It's something that everyone needs to be at the very least literate in and ideally skilled in because you're leading those people. And what I love in those sorts of sessions is when leaders realize that they are doing it. They just haven't thought about it in that way. And to be able to bring awareness to the good things that they're doing, as well as the things that they need to do better, is so valuable for them to be able to say, in meetings, I do make sure that people aren't interrupting each other. Or if somebody is talked over, I will stop that and bring that person in. And maybe they've never thought about that as inclusive before, but to kind of give them the language and their confidence that those things are part of their role and that they're valuable, I think is so powerful. And you see people become advocates amongst their peer group of other leaders, which is how you spread the good stuff, isn't it? If you're a manager and you're listening, or if you're an employee and you're sick of your managers not leading, you have five questions to get your leader to ask people. The first is, what would a culture of equality look like? So first, get people to define what a culture of equality looks like. And you know that's an environment that People feel free to be themselves because they know there'll be value for that. And then ask your people, what are two to three things we could do over the next 12 months to create that type of environment? So if we were just as a team to focus on this as a business problem, what would we do to solve it? And then ask them, what am I not doing as a leader to create that type of environment? And what is something I need to start doing as a leader to create that type of environment? And what is one thing everybody can commit to to do to create that time run. If every leader just had that conversation with their team and asked those five questions, you would see transformative effects yeah. um, you know, over a 12-month period because leaders would be taking accountability yeah. for owning the culture and environment they create and encouraging their people to do the same. Number seven, I'm actually scared of this one because I'm worried about how much I'm going to talk, but you know, affecting <laughs> women focusing on changing or fixing women in some way to fit into male-dominated environments costs men. And here's why. So I really feel, if you're a male listening to this podcast, that we owe you an apology. I feel like we've left you out of the DEI conversation and I've got data to prove it. So I surveyed about 735 men and I asked them, you know, what is the number one barrier to your advancement at work? And overwhelmingly, men said DEI initiatives focused on women. And then I did a whole massive sort of qualitative study analyzing men's experiences. And men really feel left out. They don't know what their role is. They don't know how to take action. They don't know what's being asked them. They're scared of making mistakes. They're scared of getting canceled. They feel left out. And it makes sense. If you're focusing on representation, you're saying it's a bums and seats scenario that we're trying to solve for. It's a zero-sum game. 
And when you're fixing women, so all these women-focused initiatives, women's networking, women's mentoring, women's coaching, what you're saying is women need all this extra stuff because they're not quite as capable and so we're going to give them a leg up. So men are looking at this saying, this is all unfair, I'm being left out. And the reality is you need just as many initiatives focused on men because they're in the positions of power to affect change. So for me, you know, fixing women has cost us men's engagement in the fight for equity and equality. Yeah. And just building on that, that this isn't about forcing people in positions of privilege out onto the scrap heap. People in positions of privilege, we need you more than ever to move the dial on these things, to kind of recognize the power that that privilege gives you and the ability to use that to make a difference. And I think Lily Zhang said something in an HBR article I was reading where she was saying, you know, some of this is about reframing how we talk about it to kind of recognize the strengths it brings. We were talking about gender just there, Michelle, but it's equally valid for a race and every other area of difference. And she was saying, you know, we should talk about how white people have a powerful and partial understanding of how race works in societies. It's like we need that voice in that conversation, but it's partial. You need to learn, fill those gaps be able to kind of advocate and change for other people. And rather than it being an attack or felt as an attack, it's much more of a, can we just all get together and work out what we can do to influence? I think that oftentimes we inadvertently pit groups against each other and it's just so damaging and totally counterproductive. Also, we need men. I don't know why I have such a hard time doing that. Yeah. We need men. Otherwise, we're never going to get there. Like women yeah, absolutely. can't inequality, they don't create right so we need men to solve the problem they've created and yeah. to do that we need men to understand why it costs them inequality costs men to mm -hmm. a huge extent and if you don't believe me feel free to read my book there's a whole chapter on the barriers men face because of cultures that devalue difference and increasingly this is really going to cost men as we move into workplaces that are more inclusive more diverse yeah. where technology change the nature of jobs, you can't go it alone, you've got to collaborate, you've got to be able to bridge your differences. Men need the inclusion more than anybody else. Yeah. So that then leads to eight, which is this idea, so hold on to your seats, that <laughs> micro practices create macro changes. So this is yeah. something I've learned over the last 12 months when I have been working with a lot of companies to try and change their culture and a lot of organizations want the one and done, right? They want, give me the big thing. Give me the program, the off-yourself solution. Let's create something that's going to solve this. And there's no solving inequality. So I just want to put that out there. There's no one and done. There's no gold star. Nobody's going to give you a trophy at the end. No one's going to come across your culture and say, here you go. It's equitable. Never going to happen. And the reason is it's a practice. It's something that we do. It's a lot like safety in workplaces. You can have generally a culture that values safety, but how safe you are at any one point depends on how people are behaving. Equality and equity, it's exactly the same thing. So every day people either add, contribute to that through acts of inclusion or take away from a culture of equality by behaving in exclusionary ways. So for me, what we've got to learn is what are the practices, what are small day-to-day -day acts of inclusion we can engage in they're going to add to other people's experiences of belonging, of feeling valued, of feeling like they can be themselves. And that's the job, is that if you give people enough micro practices over time, you will change your culture. But it's a long game. And even then, culture is always changing, right? Because people leave, new people come in. So jobs of leaders is to really help people understand 
What do I need to do every day with the small acts of inclusion that are going to add to the culture? Yeah, so true. There's no silver bullet. And if anyone tries to sort of sell you a silver bullet, they're selling you snake oil. And I think you're right. So much of this is about how we think about culture. Like I can't count the number of conversations I've had where someone will say, we have a great culture here. And you say, that's wonderful. Why is it great? And people are kind of like, um everyone's nice to each other and actually part of this is we don't really teach people how to think about what makes a culture and how to understand that they influence it every day every minute in their interactions with their team and and as leaders in particular and the behavioral insights team that used to be called the nudge unit they were part of the uk government and they use nudge psychology to test really exactly what you're describing michelle as micro changes and what impact they have and some of them on the face of it look quite small and quite simple but the research shows that they have huge effects so things like just to give a couple of examples to tell listeners what we're talking about things like if you advertise all jobs as flexible by default the huge difference that makes in terms of people feeling they're able to say I would like to work part-time or I would like to work flexibly whereas if you don't say it you get a massive distortion in terms of the numbers of people who will ask for that equally things like saying that salary is negotiable saying it's negotiable will encourage the research would suggest women to have conversations that they might not otherwise whereas men might well have the conversation anyway and so you kind of create this gap and you can just do away with that and things like in job adverts only putting criteria that would absolutely count the person out of the role if they didn't meet it, not putting extraneous requirements in. And that's just a very narrow, almost recruitment kind of lens focus. But there are so many little steps like that that have a huge difference. And I think rather than seeing that as a bad thing, as there are so many things we have to do, we can never crack this. I think we should see that as an empowering thing, that it means every single day you can do something that will have an effect, Like you don't have to wait to be given permission. Just Mm -hmm. do something today. What's that thing? We talked about it before in Frozen, where it's like, do the next right thing. (laughs) Frozen 2. And it's that, isn't it? It's like, just do the next right thing and then move on to the next day and do the next right thing then. Can you tell Kelly's a mom? She's quoting Frozen. I love it. I know, right? Um, (laughs) Lessons from Frozen. So that's a whole nother podcast. So lesson number nine, we're on the home stretch here, is that the future of work is inclusive. Now, I've left this to last because this is my second book, team. It will be out next year, which is very exciting. And it's all on the skills you need to survive and thrive in the future world of work. By the way, they just happen to be inclusive behaviors. And there's four reasons for that. So I just want to share why the logic around this. There's four major changes that are coming our way. The first is technological advancements have actually already happened. So the pandemic sped a lot of this up for a variety of reasons that my book will explain. But we're seeing advancements in AI, technology, automation, the Internet of Things, nanotechnology, already changing the way we work. In fact, 60% of jobs are going to change over the next three to five years. Most jobs actually are already starting to change. So what does that mean? That means that your ability to learn is going to be critical. and Your ability to collaborate with others is going to be critical because the way technology is changing jobs, it's actually placing a premium on soft skills like being inclusive, collaborating, bridging differences. So technology changes are happening and that then in turn is going to change most of our jobs. So those are the two first two major challenges. The third is really that we're seeing globally a diversification of talent. And again, COVID sped that up. So what we're seeing is that your workplace can advertise a job and people can work remotely, which means you're opening up a global talent pool and it's much more likely 
that you're going to have to work with people who don't share your cultural background, don't think like you, don't act like you. And that's going to be hard because a lot of workplaces, people haven't had to do that. So learning how to bridge differences is critical. And then the fourth major challenge is it's not just with the people that we work with, it's also the clients we serve. So globally, we're seeing a trend towards the diversification of customers, and that's really a result of globalization. So you're going to have to serve customers who might not share your background. And so those four changes really boil down to one key thing, that to survive and thrive in the future world of work, you have to learn, number one, how to navigate the informal side of working life, manage relationships, build relationships with other people, build connections, and deal with a lot of the social side of working life. But also, you're going to have to do that in a context where there's a high level of diversity. So if you've not had to learn to bridge your differences, if you don't have friends who are Black, if you've never been exposed to people from the trans community, if you don't know anyone who's part of the LGBTQIA community, if you don't have any friends with different physical or mental abilities, if you've never had to learn about that, you are in a very privileged position, but it's going to cost you. And it's going to cost you starting now and increasingly over the next 10 years. So your job then is to learn about difference. And in learning about difference, find ways to bridge differences with others. That is how you'll future-proof your career, is really investing in, in that. There's a lot of research, and we had Daniel Siskin on the podcast mm. talking about how pretty much most jobs at some point are going to be replaced right, by technology. We've got technology today that can pretty much do most jobs. And so the goal of people, or will be able to, right, have the potential to, the differentiator is actually the humanity side of the equation. So how human you can be, how much you can invest in interpersonal skills, caring for others, and really being empathetic, democratic, supportive, collaborative, that will determine your ability to succeed. Absolutely. I can't wait for this book. In Humanocracy, they talk about the need for us to move from bureaucracy to what they call humanocracy. So rather than thinking about how do we get our human beings to better serve the business, we have to think about how do we create the sort of organization that elicits the best from people and merits the best from those people? You can't innovate in a homogenous environment, can you? You're immediately stifling the experiences that people bring, the knowledge, the perspectives. So this is actually a real opportunity to, to grow your business and future-proof it. And we are at lesson number 10. This is so cathartic, Michelle. I feel like I've got a series of New Year's resolutions that don't all revolve around eating less chocolate and doing more exercise. This is great. <laughs> well, our final one, and it's the most important one, and it's going to irritate some people. And normally I know I'm doing my job in the space when people are uncomfortable. So if you're uncomfortable, that's really good. Well done. <laughs> it's that true inclusion benefits you. And I don't know why we have such a hard time with this, but the reality is there is nothing worse than telling someone from an underrepresented group that you're helping them. I don't need your help. I promise you I don't. I don't need your help. What I need you to do is remove the barriers you create and recognizing that in doing that, you're actually benefiting you. And what I mean by that is when you take effort and time to get to know difference, to understand difference, you then learn how to bridge your differences with others. That's going to make you more effective as an employee and it's going to make you more effective as a leader. When you create an inclusive environment where other people can be themselves and be valued for that, you're actually creating an environment where you can be yourself and be valued for that. And in that environment, research shows you're more likely to innovate, you're more likely to collaborate, you're more likely to collectively problem solve, you're more likely to be productive, you're more likely to be effective in how you're working. 
So for me, you know, the goal for everybody is to recognize this is not a zero-sum game. This is the future of work. The idea that someone has to win and someone has to lose is the old school way of working. And that world has changed. Today and increasingly, what we're going to see is that to achieve anything at work, you're going to have to work with other people. And that means like we actually have a collective success that we need to start sort of reframing what it means to win at work, what it means to succeed at work. It's all about collectively succeeding. You can't do it at the expense of someone. And so for me, inclusion is really starts with recognizing, hey, why does this benefit me? You know, finish the sentence, a more equal workplace serves to benefit me because. And when you can do that, you really understand what inclusion is all about. Absolutely. And, and for me, the, the, the absolute beauty of being able to practice inclusion and continue to practice it every day is the opportunity to learn from other people, to build your knowledge, to build your experiences, to share your knowledge and thoughts with others, to change your mind on things, to get things wrong sometimes and then correct them and do better next time. And I just think, why would you not want to operate in that kind of environment where you can learn new things, take new perspectives, go in different directions. And you can't do that without an inclusion-based approach to certainly as a leader in particular, but in any job. So yeah, it really is the way of the future. So those are our top 10 diversity, equity and inclusion lessons for 2022. We hope they resonated for you and that they'll help you when you're setting your own focus for this work in 2022, both for yourself and within your organisations. After almost a year now of co-hosting this podcast with Michelle, I am constantly inspired by our guests and the actions that they're all taking every day to advocate for and amplify the voices of others and to challenge the status quo where the status quo doesn't work for everyone. Whether it's 15-year-old Alicia Aurora leveraging technology to prevent suicide, Dr. Jen Pena shining light on the gender inequality in medicine, or Ashley Morgan sharing insights on avoiding burnout at work and the particular challenges for women of colour. All of our guests have different focuses, but they share the same commitment to making equality everyone's business. I would love for 2022 to be the year where equality becomes truly mainstream and where taking action towards a more equal working world becomes something that we really regard as part of everyone's day job. Of our 10 lessons today, perhaps the one that rings most true for me is that managing is inclusive leadership. To be a good leader, you must be able to practice inclusion. It's a core leadership skill. It's a skill that you cannot delegate to others. This has always been the case and it will only become even more critical in our workplaces of the future across all sectors and all countries. The good news is that it's never too late to learn to work and to lead more inclusively. And the exciting news is that in 2022, with this podcast, we'll be doing lots of deep dives with our guests into the future world of work and the skills and practices which are critical for organisations, for leaders, and in fact, for all of us to get ready for those macro changes coming our way. So stay tuned. Thanks for tuning into our episode today. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.